Good morning. Um, our reading is the Song of Ascents that comes from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. would have a seat this morning, uh, but stay there in Psalm 126. We're going to be uh, spending a great deal of our time there this morning. Now, uh, there is something that you need to know about this psalm. It, it talks a lot about tears, and uh, it happens that human beings are the only creatures in all of creation who actually express emotion by way of tears. Now, that does sound like something that a pastor would say, and you'd just be like, have you asked all of them? Like, do you know all of these creatures that supposedly don't emote? Uh, take it not from me. Take it from, uh, I guess, the overseer of the Smithsonian National Zoo, Brian Armal. Uh, he said that, and so I'm not just making it up. It happens that one of the things that, uh, that we actually get as a part of our image of God is actually emotion, is expressing that emotion specifically even through tears. But that doesn't mean necessarily that we have a healthy relationship with tears, uh, we see a lot of dysfunction even in the ways that we weep and cry and uh, the things that bring us tears. Uh, I see time after time kind of sitting down with, uh, with couples where uh, they'll just say, he's emotional. Uh, that's a made-up word, uh, just uh, without emotion, doesn't show or display any emotion. He's like John Wayne, this guy. He doesn't think or cry about anything, and uh, I, I don't think that that's true. I think that men are very emotional. Many are hyper-emotional. We just have lived, I think, kind of in a culture that says that you're not allowed to express it, that real men don't express emotion, especially by way of tears. You've got to man up. No tears for you. The truth is, is that I see guys emote all the time. It just takes a, a great deal to convince them that there's a safe place for that kind of emotion. But I don't just see it on kind of that one side. I also see it on another side. I see that there are people that actually use their emotions, even their tears, to manipulate other people. Uh, it's, a, it's a need for control. It's a desire to see uh, more of their surroundings kind of bent towards their will. And I've actually had in my time as a pastor to confront people and just say, hey, listen, every time that things kind of get out of control, it seems like you want to use tears to kind of bring things back into line. It's very difficult, as it were, to uh, try to uh, um, you know, tell somebody, hey, stop crying, or you're, you're crying for the wrong reasons, or don't cry like that, uh, you know, trying to bring them back into reality. And so there are people that really will use a great deal of emotion to kind of manipulate their surroundings, manipulate other people around them. So we don't have, uh, as it were, just a natural inclination towards health with regard to the things that make us tear up, the things that make us sorrowful, the things that make us cry. 
Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says that there is a, a, a time for everything under the sun. And one of those things is literally a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. And that's really what this psalm, Psalm 126, is kind of getting after is what is the time for these things? What is the time for these things? But it goes beyond that uh, ecclesiastical verse. It goes into the relationship actually between our tears and joy. So it doesn't just say that there's a time for these things. It actually tells us that healthy, steadfast disciples know the time for tears. They know the time for grief and uh, weeping with others and bearing burdens. That we know the time. Steadfast Christians know the time for celebration. Know the time for laughter. Know the time for dancing, even just like David. But what is the relationship between sorrow and joy? What is the relationship between sorrow and joy, tears and shouts of joy in Christ's kingdom? When does one produce the other? Understanding this can not only help you towards more emotional health, it can help you towards more spiritual health. It can also help this church in knowing these things, the relationship between these things on our road towards a revival of joyful worship. How do we understand the way that sorrow brings itself into joy and shouts of joy? And here's where we understand the psalm in front of us teaching us something very specific. The psalm in front of us teaches us that seeds sown in sorrow reap a righteous reward. Seeds sown in sorrow reap a righteous reward. And there are kind of buoys in the water for us to kind of navigate through this morning. Those uh, things that we've got to actually bring out of the text is a restoration remembered, a problem with pain, and the last one is a rejoicing and redemption. So if you want to write those down, that's where we're headed this morning. It's the restoration remembered, the problem of pain, and the rejoicing in redemption. That's kind of the track that we're running this morning. And what we're doing is we're continuing on in these Psalms of Ascent. As we are ascending into worship, we are reading these psalms that are bringing about a more holistic vision for how we worship God. And we find ourselves in a theme of a couple of psalms back to back that are trying to understand the world as it is and understand our place of worship within them. And so here we actually see that the worshiper has gone up, he's gone into Jerusalem, he is there, he's noting the things around him, and this worshiper looks at the state of Jerusalem and God's people. Israel and sees that there are actually consequences for disobedience and they've lost their fortunes. They've, they've lost the uh, fortunate blessing of God. And what is going to happen in the midst of this song is not just the realization, but that that realization stokes an intense desire to plead with God for blessing in the midst of his sorrows. But first, he starts with just a moment of remembrance, this restoration remembered. Let's read verse 1. Read it with me. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Now, this, this uh, passage starts off with a very specific word. It says, when. This is referring back. It's referring to a previous time. We know and understand from this psalm that it's not a Davidic psalm. 
It's not one written by David. And so we're not really totally sure when it was written or what this was written about. We're not sure when it was that they were uh, looking back to even. But we get the sense because of some of the other things that are said here that we are allowed to wander. And I wonder whether or not this is likely referring to the return from exile into the promised land. But it says when... When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Of course, uh, the, the Lord doesn't mean that, right? The, the, the Lord doesn't concern himself with the fortunes of man. That's something that I think that you could, you could read this verse and just be like, what does God care about the fortunes of man? Now, here's what I will tell you. If you've heard me say things like this before, I don't think that that's true. I don't think that that sentiment is true. I think that that's really just a vestigial belief, something that doesn't have a purpose anymore, or maybe even more so, it's kind of an overreaction to the heresy of the health and wealth gospel that has risen up in our time, that if you can just pray enough and give enough to a certain pastor and be a part of the right church, that God will bless you in your health and that you will get very wealthy. Now, what you won't hear this morning is anything of the kind from me. There's no uh, do this and God will bless you and you will receive these kinds of riches and material blessing. You're not going to hear me say that, but what you will hear me say is that there's a relationship between the things that God says that uh, life works best and his blessing on you. And some of that even includes your fortune. This says that the Lord restored the fortunes. It's not something that the, the fortunes were just arbitrarily restored. It says that when you restored the fortunes, when you restored the fortunes, and you get the idea that it's not merely just talking about real estate here, that maybe they had been in exile, but then they came back to uh, God's specific place for God's specific people on this earth there in Jerusalem and in Israel, the promised land. You get the idea that it actually means more than that, that it's not just a restoration to the land. It's not just a restoration of the leadership of the people, but that it actually had something to do with the blessings that God's people enjoyed. Does that sound dangerous to you? What I, what I want to do is say this. The Lord actually gives us instruction in his word. It actually gives us patterns of how life works best. And I'm always really shocked at how Christians just seem to neglect this. That God actually means what he says, but that he actually means it to actually in some ways impact the life that you're living. The amount of blessing that you're enjoying. How can he mean that? Well, if you just take the Ten Commandments, for example, if you obey his Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie, if you choose to follow God in obedience by not lying, guess what you never have to remember? Your lies. You never have to worry about being found out. It, it, actually, there is a blessing, not just a, a, some material or arbitrary blessing. There's a real blessing the, the people that I know that uh, just are truth-tellers sleep very well at night. It's a good blessing. When, when we see the uh, commandment, thou shalt not steal, you don't have to worry about coming judgment or uh, you don't have to worry about being thrown into prison. You don't have to be worried about owing somebody something. If you don't steal, there is a real blessing of peace of mind. If you don't covet, if you follow his commandment not to covet, guess what you don't have to do? Devote all of the headspace of anxiety and worry and people pleasing and the desire to keep up with the Joneses, whoever those are in your life. 
You don't have to worry about any of that. You actually get a sense of rest, of contentment. Here's what I mean. I don't want for anybody to get uh, stuck on this idea of God blessing his people and, and then lay on top of what I'm saying some sort of health and wealth gospel. I just simply mean that God has told us the way that life works best. And if we go about trying to live out in obedience to his commands, we'll receive a reward. We will be blessed with things that are immeasurable, that are wonderful, that are good. So here's, here's what I want for us to get out of that, it is, is some sense of a need to actually examine our lives. Do we actually believe that God's promises in the midst of his instructions will lead to blessing? Do we understand it? Do we believe it? But it goes on not just to say when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, it said that they were caught up. In it. They, they were like those who dream. Their mouths were filled with laughter, their tongues with shouts of joy. And it says finally in that first stanza that they were glad. Man, that sounds good. This kind of blessing sounds really good, that they were like those who dream. It's almost like their imaginations weren't good enough to even conceive of the blessing that they had received. And so it just had to have been something that occurred to them like they were dreaming. It was almost as though when God restored their fortunes, they needed to be pinched. Things were so good. Their mouths were filled with laughter, shouts of joy. But it doesn't just say mouths. It actually uses the singular because this is talking about God's people together. It says their mouth was filled with laughter and their tongue with shouts of joy and they together were glad. In fact, they were so glad that the nations around them had to take notice of it. It was undeniable in this way. If you look there uh, at, uh, at that verse, it says that the nations said, the Lord has done great things for them. And then it turns from just noticing that the nations had noticed their blessing to actually saying the Lord had done great things for us. The Lord had restored their fortunes in a way that the nations took notice of, that the nations could not possibly deny. And we actually see this in the history of the Old Testament. We see God's people being moved back into the land and receiving blessing upon blessing. Their obedience was honored by God. The people were blessed in their place. Man, this is wonderful because this psalmist is actually remembering back to that moment. But then, what about all of those people who have no fortune to remember? What about those who are experiencing the sorrow of life, regular, everyday grief? What about those people? What do they look back to? How do they deal with this? And this comes to our second point, the problem of pain. Verse 4 says this, Restore our fortunes, O Lord. So it doesn't just go about uh, enumerating the blessings from the past. It actually turns into a psalm of lament, a, a psalm of request. You would be uh, forgiven for thinking that this might be a psalm of praise by the way that it starts out. It talks about the restoration of these fortunes and laughter and joy and gladness, these kinds of things. But here we find that this is told from the perspective of a person who is experiencing great grief. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. It's crying out, restore our fortunes, O Lord. This is no psalm of praise, it's a psalm of lament. 
It, it goes on to talk about those who sow in tears, who go out weeping. And there's an important principle right at the very beginning of this. When you look back on all of the great things that God has done and then consider your present sufferings, you must remember the sovereign source of gladness and joy. You have to remember that right from the get-go. You can't go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bootstrap this. I'm in the midst of sorrows, in the midst of grief. I'm just going to fix everything in my life. That cannot be your first step. That's not the psalmist's first step. The psalmist's first step is to remember and then to request, just simply to request that God would remember them and restore their fortunes. There's no get-rich-quick scheme kind of buried in the midst of this. There's no recipe for health or wealth. There's also, for those of us who are experiencing grief, who will experience sorrow, there is an honesty in this psalm. There's no avoidance of the painful truth that you will experience sorrows. It says, when you experience the flood of tears, when you go out weeping, ask God to restore your fortunes. But, but here's part of the problem of pain. Here's, here's one of the things that we as Christians, we've got to confront head on. We, we cannot be just uh, oblivious to it. We can't be happy-go-lucky about the problem of pain. This kind of pain is a problem. What about when he doesn't restore fortunes right away? What about when you experience unrelenting anguish? What about when you are brokenhearted? What about when your bones waste away? This is one of the things that I love about the Bible. This is one of the things that I love about God's true word. It doesn't try to pretend that sin hasn't impacted all of life, that it doesn't bring about sorrows, that it doesn't heap upon burdens. It doesn't try to pretend like any of that thing, uh, any of that stuff is not real. What it does is it goes straight to the heart of the matter and it reminds you to first request from God a restoration of fortune, but then when he doesn't, you have to deal with the problem of pain. Now, now, some of you even know this terminology. The problem of pain is not something that I came up with that's like a, a quick quip. It's actually a philosophical idea. It's an atheistic idea actually. It's something that is meant to disprove God. Here's the way that the argument goes, as simply as I can put it, that the presence of pain and suffering in life disproves who God is. Because God either has to be uh, great but not good, or good but not great. He can't be both because of the problem of pain. He either has to be sovereign and great and powerful, but then when your sorrows and your grief come along, he cares not about it, so he's great but not good, or he has to be uh, good, caring of you, wishing that you were not going through this, wanting to comfort you but not great enough to do anything about it. That's a, that's a real problem that Christians really actually have to grapple with. And what I want to do is actually spend the next few moments telling you how I think that God actually deals with this problem. Why? Because God's sovereignty in a cruel and deformed and death-filled world 
has to be able to interact with you also personally when your marriage is excruciating, when your father is dealing with substance abuse issues, when you are dealing with a tornness in your identity, when you are questioning the reality of what you are experiencing, whatever it is that is making you grieve, whatever it is, me, uh, is in this life that is uh, helping you to lose hope of some kind, you have to have a God who is good enough and great enough to help you deal with that in the midst of that moment. But here's what I'm going to try to prove to you this morning, in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the problem of pain is real. But, but in God, we find that he is actually a far bigger problem for pain than pain is for him. The problem of pain, if you'll go with me here, assumes that like just the philosophical idea of the problem of pain, meaning to disprove who God is, means that the person who is considering this has to assume that they can know all things, that they could know possibly how a great and good God would allow for suffering. You, you have to, when you are confronting this problem of pain, you have to see this as something that God, uh, you know, maybe can't actually straighten out and use for a good result in your life. The problem of pain assumes that one can know all of God's purposes and that pain can't result in good, ultimate good for you. That's the problem that pain has. There's a solemn promise that is really buried in this psalm for pain, a solemn promise for the purpose of pain, the, the answer to the question, what is the end to all our woes? This is the truth. There is a gospel promise buried in this text. I wonder if I can show it to you. Because in the midst of this text, there is a rejoicing in redemption. So not just a uh, restoration remembered, not just a problem for pain, but actually a rejoicing in redemption. It says that those who sow tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Joy. There's a promise in the midst of all of that sorrow and all of that pain, and it's joy. Verse 6 says, He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of what, church? Say it. Joy. Not, not joy. Joy. Shouts of joy. That's what's at the end of this road of suffering. That's where we're going to pivot this morning. So if you've, if you've been lost in the midst of the problem of pain, what I want you to do is return, come home, as it were, to joy. While most false, false faiths, while, while most wishy-washy worldviews would minimize your suffering or teach you that the greatest thing that you can do is avoid suffering or serve up some sort of chicken soup comfort, the Father promises a purpose, and that purpose is exuberant joy and spiritual fortune. Look at these two back-to-back -back verses. I'm going to read them one more time. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. 
He who goes out weeping, bearing seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. If you sow seeds in sorrow, then you will reap the righteous reward of joy. How does that work? That's, that's the question that we should be asking. How can this psalm be true? This psalm was written uh, presumably hundreds of years before the gospel, before the incarnation of Christ. How can this possibly be written? How can it be true? In order for your seeds of sorrow to bear the fruit of joy, they must be redeemed. What you need to know is is that the seeds that you will always go along spreading need to be redemptive seeds. They need to be something that actually is redeemed and results in joy. John chapter 11. I want for you to join with me there because we're actually going to spend the rest of our time, almost the rest of our time, in John chapter 11. So turn there with me. We're going to be talking about the verses where Jesus raises Lazarus and a couple of things that kind of flow out of that. Let me read for you. Now, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her, also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Here's what I'm going to pause there in the story and just, I want for us to let this set on top of us. This is not a fable. This is not a myth. This is not some uh, Greek story. This is truth. What happened is, is that the God of this universe came to earth and experienced sorrow experienced grief. He wept. For some of us this morning who are experiencing just heart-wrenching pain in our lives, for those of us who have just come out of seasons but don't even know what to do with all of the experience, the pain and suffering that we have come through, what you need to know, first of all, is, is that Jesus came and experienced it right alongside of you. We do not believe in a God who knows nothing of sorrow. We do not believe in a redeemer who did not come and weep over his dead friend and over the tears of the people that were around him, Mary and Martha and the Jews that were surrounding them. He wept. The God of this universe, beloved, wept. I'm not even, I'm not pausing for drama. I want you to get in your soul that the God of this universe wept. Real tears, real tears of his had to be wiped away. Real tears of his fell to the ground just like yours. He wept over death and over the pain and suffering of his friends. We could plumb the depths of that probably for the rest of the morning. But what I want for us to get is is that the first stop on this is that Jesus knows your pain. He is truly a man of sorrows. And they, they, they seem to even see him weeping and they wrestle with it in the moment. They seem to actually do this whole problem of pain thing that we just got through doing. Some of them just go, 
look how he loved. He, he's expressing love and care for this friend. He's not just some uh, Zen Buddhist, like, you know, soothsaying prophet, like prancing around from town to town, just saying things and then just leaving in a mist. He's one who comes and enters in, and he actually experiences what we experience. They say, see how he loved. And then another group of people just goes, What? Couldn't the same man who just healed the blindness of the blind man have kept this man from dying? You see, they're wrestling with it too. They're trying to understand how the good God and the great God go together in the person of Jesus Christ. Let us go on to say that the greatest thing that could have ever happened to Lazarus happens next. He goes, where have you laid him? Show me where you've laid him. And he goes to that place and he prays a prayer for the people that are standing around. And then with a loud voice, he says, Lazarus, come out. At which time in human history, you would have heard nothing about it if nothing had happened. But nothing didn't happen. A dead man comes out of the tomb, wrapped up, and Jesus says, get him out of there. He's got things to do. Now, now why am I going into all of this? It's not just that uh, Jesus experiences sorrows. It's that he wants to enter into those sorrows and then show us that he has the power of redemption, has the power of resurrection. And, And you know who got this more than anyone? The chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Because they go on to immediately start planning not only to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus again. Do you know this part of the story? Do you know that these people were so offended by resurrection, so offended that there could be greatness that came out of grief, that they immediately started planning to kill the one who could do it, who could bring the dead to life again? And there's a reason why they did it. They said that, Um, many of the Jews believed in him. But the chief priests and the Pharisees said, what are we to do? Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe. And then the Romans will take away our place and our nation. This is how we can know that the, the fortunes, the restored fortunes, aren't what Jesus is after. Jesus is not after real estate. He's not after material blessing for you. What he's after is resurrection. And these people wanted to preserve their uh, riches, preserve their real estate, even at the expense of the one true redeemer. And here's, here's what happens next. Jesus then, in verse 49, if you'll read with me, we'll see, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand what is better for you, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He's trying to protect something. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one children of God who were scattered abroad. So even this chief priest who's now plotting to kill Jesus just gives it up. We've got to kill this guy. He's got to be done with. We have to put him in the ground. Why does that matter? 
Because just a few short verses later, we can see that Jesus knows something of what it takes for there to be resurrection. Verse 24, he says this, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. What is Jesus after in this statement? I think that what Jesus is after is exactly what this psalm is after. If we this morning believe that uh, seeds of sorrow are sown so that there can be a reaping of righteous reward, what Jesus is saying is, I'm the seed. The gospel truth in the midst of this is that if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is the seed sown in sorrow that reaps the righteous reward. Jesus is the seed died and was buried in a tomb three days, dying for sin and sorrow and shame. Jesus is the first fruits of righteousness raised out of the ground alive resurrection of hope, resurrection of joy, dare we even say, worthy of shouts of joy. Jesus, we see here, is not after real estate, but a restoration of relationship. Jesus is the restoration remembered for us. He is the one who faced the problem of pain and broke down its power. Jesus is the redemption, rejoicing, resurrected redeemer. That's who he is. He's the one that allows us to shout with joy even in the midst of great sorrow. So here. Here's, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to get into the theology necessarily and just leave it there, to leave it be a part of our minds, that we can just go, okay, that's who Jesus was, that's, who he, that's what he did, he's the seed sown in sorrow, he's the one that reaps a righteous reward, this reward of rejoicing and resurrection. I don't want to just leave it in our minds. I want for us to actually talk about what do you do tomorrow? What do you do when you get in the car right after the service and you're faced with whatever is bringing you grief and sorrow? What is it that you do when you are living life in a world filled with grief? How does this gospel message even apply? Here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that you are not to waste those tears. Don't waste the sorrows that God gives you. You're like, how can you say that? How can you uh, beckon me not to uh, waste something that I want to get as far away from as possible? How can you say this to me? It's because of the promise. The gospel promise here allows us to ascend into worship despite our circumstances. Look in verse 6. It says that the one who goes out weeping shall actually come home. He comes home. And what does he come home with? With like a, a dour expression, with an unbelief in his heart, with a burden that he's carrying? No, he comes home with shouts of joy. Here, here's what I heard one pastor say uh, this last week. Not all Christians will enjoy the hors d'oeuvres, but all of them will enter the forever feast. Man, that's good. So when we look at the front of uh, this uh, set of verses and we see, um, you restored our fortunes, O Lord, restore our fortunes. Even the nations had to give it up. They had to say, God blessed them. 
and God did bless us, some of us will not experience that kind of blessing on this side of heaven. Some of us will live in just perpetual misery. I'll be honest with you, I I find a lot of people say, I've got one question for God when I get to heaven, or maybe you've got lots of questions for God. In some ways, like, I just, that song, I can only imagine, I just don't think we're going to do that. I don't think we're going to, like, enter into the throne room of God, see his glory, and go, wait a second, I got a couple of things. But I I will say this, if, if I had to tell you, like, one of the things that I've got on my heart, I've seen... I've seen some people suffer. Uh, my wife and I have been extremely blessed. Uh, we, we have faced suffering, uh, but man, it hasn't been anything in comparison to some of our friends. We've seen some pretty wicked suffering in this life. And, and, and the question that I would have is, why isn't it spread out a little bit more? Why does it seem to just always kind of pile on? Why does it come upon certain people groups more than other people groups? And, and here's the truth, beloved. We, we just can't know the side of heaven. But what we can know is that those who are redeemed will be in that feast forever. And the tears that they shed here on earth will be just no more. And they will enter God's gates with thanksgiving and with shouts of joy. I don't get the idea that uh, even eons and eons from now, however we will measure time, whether time will be a thing, it will be that the oceans of eternity will have eclipsed whatever few tears, no matter how mighty they were, that you experienced in this life. And what I want for us to know, to know, to believe, to apply, is that your tears have a purpose. Your tears have a purpose. In the here and now, not in the by and by, right now, that they will sow along a path of redemption and restoration for you and for others. Jesus is the one, Jesus is the seed that was sown into the ground, that there might be first fruits, and that that harvest would come one day and it would be mighty, and that we would carry our sheaves with us into eternity, being blessed. One day, God will restore our fortunes. We, we, we look at this passage now, we now as Christians look back to Jesus and we go, Jesus gave us a fortune. We're looking back at the justification that we received. That is a fortune. Then, as Christians, we say, restore our fortunes now. Come, Lord Jesus, let us enter your kingdom, your forever perfect tearless kingdom that we could shout with joy to you. Do not waste your tears. Sow them as seeds expecting of joy. Let me pray that over you. God and Father, your son came to us uh, teaching a parable that there was a son who asked his father for his inheritance now and he squandered it in reckless living He was unworthy, he found himself in a pigsty, and he restored to the fortune of his home. He walked back, and there his father was, ready to put a ring on his finger, to cloak him in glory, to celebrate, to have a feast. Lord, you, you are that father. 
So, Father, we ask you in the midst of wherever we are this morning that you would restore our fortunes, that the spiritual inheritance of Jesus would be real to us now, and, Lord, that it would be real to us forever by your grace. God and Father, I ask you that you would allow for City Church to be a place that does not squander seeds of sorrow. Lord, that we stand alongside of one another and bear burdens and grieve with one another and cry with one another, but that we would do it not as people who have no hope, but people who have hope forever in Jesus's eternal, tearless kingdom. Father God, I pray that City Church would be this kind of people, this kind of place. Lord, for those who are experiencing sorrow, for those who are seeing spouses uh, suffer with illness, for those who are experiencing the uh, internal rancor of hidden sin, Lord, for those of us who are experiencing uh, the sorrow of broken relationship, Lord, I pray that you would restore our fortunes, but Lord, that you would make us expectantly joyful, that you will straighten everything out, that you will bring great glory to your people. Lord, we have hope, we have faith, We trust in you that you are doing these things in so much mightily more than we could ever dream. God and Father, we pray your blessing on this people in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.